It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Located at the foothills of the Allegheny Mountains, beyond the thick forests of massive white pines, is the city of Williamsport, Pennsylvania. Once the lumber capital of the world, the hard-working spirit of the loggers that built the city remains present today. Although the quiet, small-town feel is juxtaposed by the enormous landscape that surrounds it, the strength, grit, and will possessed by the residents of Williamsport provide the body and soul for the city. 23-year-old Gail Matthews held all of these characteristics. Growing up with six siblings made Gail tough, determined, and loyal. The love of her life was her five-year-old daughter, Tamara, a happy-go-lucky child with her mother's eyes. Gail worked as a waitress at a local cafe. All the customers with whom she interacted were called her kind and friendly personality. But on September 2nd, 1994, a horrific tragedy took place, sending shockwaves through the town with the unbreakable spirit. I'm Emily Campagno, and this is the Fox True Crime Podcast. It wasn't like Gail to miss work. So when she failed to show up to her shift that Friday, people began asking questions. Sensing something was wrong, Gail's mother rushed to her house, calling her brothers to meet her there. She would be the one to uncover the grisly truth. Gail and Tamara were found strangled, bloodied, and stabbed. They had been covered with a blanket and laid out upon Tamara's bed with Gail's arms wrapped around her young daughter. Since Gail was so loved by everyone in the Williamsport community, it only added to the mystery surrounding the murder. Eventually, the case went cold. Years passed and authorities were nowhere closer to finding answers. Like any small town, people talk. Rumors began circulating as people speculated who was responsible for the heinous crime. When it comes to a cold case, separating fact from fiction can be a difficult challenge, but it's one that Detective Kenneth Maines was ready to take on. Formerly an undercover narcotics officer with the FBI, Ken's passion was solving cold cases. He was soon hired as a detective at the Lycoming County District Attorney's Office, beginning a decade-long investigative journey. Today, Detective Maines joins me to discuss the many twists and turns that complicated this case that still remains unsolved, and he takes us back to the gruesome scene discovered that tragic day. Gail Matthews, she was 23-year-old, and her daughter Tamara Burkheiser was five years old, and they lived together in a... uh, kind of a rough part of town, if you will, but it wasn't too bad. 
she was the only daughter. The rest of her uh, siblings were all male. So she was a pretty, you know, tough kid. She wasn't scared a lot, but she was determined to make it on her own. And by that, she got her own place. She was going to raise her kid her way. And she was a very likable person. And on that morning, September 2nd, uh, 1994, she was supposed to drop her child, Tamara, uh, off and go to work and it just never happened and mom started getting scared people started worrying work started calling her what's going on this isn't like her because she's very punctual and you know mom went over there with a family friend and uh, seen that the window was broke on a side door uh, reached in unlocked it went in started looking and they found uh Gail and Tamara in Tamara's bedroom, laying on the bed. Uh, their heads were actually down where your feet normally are. But Tamara, the five-year-old, was in the crux of Gail's arm. Uh, they both had been beaten and stabbed and their throats cut. And um, that is when the mystery began. And when did this horrific case land on your desk? How did you become involved? So I got involved in it. I was uh, just a, I was a narcotics officer at the time for undercover for the FBI. So how that happened is I was assigned and employed by the Williamsport Bureau of Police, but they have what's called an FBI task force where you essentially uh, get deputized as an FBI agent and you work out of the FBI's building. And that's what I was doing at the time. And but I was also dabbling in cold cases because that was really my my passion. That's what I'd like to do. So I was doing I was dabbling in it in my free time because I, I knew I wouldn't be allowed to do it full time. I was a drug cop. Uh, you know, I was undercover, but I had solved a previous cold case within my department about a year earlier. And I did that on my own time. And it was a case nobody knew about. It was a case of Don Miller. But this case, everybody knew about. Everybody knew Gail Matthews and Tamara Burkheiser case. So I started dabbling in it on my free time, not really looking at reports or requesting things, just kind of going up to the house, looking around, talking to people. And then eventually I got the courage up, I guess you would say, to ask my captain, hey, can I look at this? And uh, he told me no. And I was kind of taken aback because I had just solved the case for him. And he said, no, you're a dope cop. You know, you need to concentrate on that. I said, I'll do it on my own time, just like I did the other one. And he again said no. So I got very jaded. And uh, I, I couldn't understand it because I could understand if somebody was actually working on the case. Here it is in 2007, 2008. And when I'm asking for it. So it's many years later and nobody's working it. And that that's what bothered me when he said no. And if somebody had been working it, fine. But no one was. So I basically, you know, I made rash decisions in my young age. And I said, you know what? I'm out of here. I, I don't I don't need this. And if you're not going to allow me to investigate this case um, and nobody else is doing it, I'm leaving. 
And they basically called my bluff. And I realize now that you're just a cog in the wheel and, you know, life moves on. But at the time, I thought, you know, they're going to allow me to look at it. They didn't. So I quit. And uh, I was at home for about 28 days when the district attorney called me. He said, Kenny, I got an opening for a detective in my office. I want you. Um, He said, you'll take a 50% pay cut. And I said, well, that's fine. He goes, but you'll work on the Gail Matthews case full time. I was happy. I said, that's all I want. And uh, so in 2000, I guess it was 2011, I went and worked for the district attorney's office full time and basically worked that case for 10 years. Mm. Can you describe for us then what your 10-year investigation looked like? How did you proceed? What did you uncover? What did you learn during that time? Well, see, what people have to under- realize is cold cases are cold for a reason. They're difficult, okay? The ones that are easy, the ones that are the killers caught on surveillance or DNA is found, um, they're solved. They don't become cold cases. Cold cases are difficult because usually there's not a lot of evidence. So the first thing that I wanted to do was I wanted to get rid of all the rumors. Cold cases are like a black cloud that hang over. And a lot of it is just rumors after so many years. So I had heard the rumors. You know, it was this person. It was this person. She was this person. Strip all that away. Let's start with, first of all, the most important thing in a case, and that's victimology. Gail Matthews and Tamara Burkheiser. I needed to know every single thing about them. When Gail brushed her hair, I wanted to know with what hand. You know, I want to know how she takes her shoes off. Now, you wonder why that's relevant. Well, when you're looking at crime scene photos and you see her shoes and they're placed one behind the other, then you can realistically say, well, she took her shoes off with her feet. That's normal. But if somebody tells you her mom says she always sat down, took shoes off, put them in the closet, and you look at crime scene photos and you see the shoes aren't in the closet, it means something. So that's what victimology is. You have to know every single thing about that person. Some of it's relevant and some of it isn't, but that's how I wanted to start. Who are her enemies? Does she have any money situation? Does she have boyfriends where she's paying child support to? Is that a conflict? Because you always want to look for conflict. And I found not a lot of it. And what I realized was that Gail was a typical, hardworking, single mom who wanted to make it on her own. She wasn't a partier. She didn't really drink. And if she did, it was never at the house. She'd go out with her friends. She never did drugs. And she had a small circle of friends. And then it starts becoming difficult because when you can't find conflict, you think of, well, what stranger would come into this town that only has maybe five murders a year and four out of the five are drug related, who would have a problem with not just Gail, but her five-year-old daughter? And that's where I started. And so what did you uncover? Well, I uncovered potential conflict. And the potential conflict was with Tamara Burkheiser's father, Eric. Uh, Initially, 
all signs kind of pointed to them. Now, you have to backtrack a little bit and look at what the previous investigators had done. And what they had done was a great job in investigating, but they had arrested an individual twice, two different times, I believe in 1997 and again in 2001. A, girl, a guy named Earl Skip Kramer. So the investigation, when I get it, it's almost already tainted by that arrest because maybe he did, maybe he didn't do it. I don't know. But I do know that each time he was arrested, charges were dropped. So there's got to be a reasoning for that. But if I just go back and listen to the old detectives, they're just telling me he's guilty, he's guilty, he's out on technicality, he's, he's guilty, he's guilty. Well, I like to make that own determination. I will take what you're saying and I'll hold it because I respect old investigators, but I need to know myself. So when I started looking at it, I kind of put Earl Skip Kramer to the side a little bit because he had no conflict with Gail. He was a next door neighbor and he lived with a girl there by the name of Brenda. They were boyfriend and girlfriend. But he didn't, he stayed there, yes, but he was also stayed in another part of town. But he did know Gail. But there was no conflict. But Eric, the child's father, there was a little bit of conflict. And the conflict was child support payments. Now, he was only paying at the time, I think it was $15 a month or a week. I'm not sure. Something insignificant to us but it doesn't mean it's not significant to him. So there was an argument between Gail and Eric over this child support payment and him saying he wasn't going to pay it because Gail had just taken him back to domestics and, and they said, Hey, we're going to raise, raise it. And it created a conflict. So initially I was kind of zoned in on Eric. Now, I, around this time, I had started what was called the American Investigative Society of Cool Cases. It was this great cool case organization, and I recruited the best of the best. Dr. Henry Lee, Dr. Cyril Weck, Joe Kenda, uh, Mark Safford, FBI criminal profilers, Ann Burgess from Criminal Minds and uh, Manhunter on Netflix, all these people. So I sent the case to them hey, here's the relevant information. Tell me what you see. I want to see if I'm on the right track. A lot of them came back and said, you're Eric Berkheiser. He's the one with the motive. Okay, so I followed that route. But things kind of took a, a change at some point, probably years in the investigation, and it led me back away from Eric to her current boyfriend whose name was Jay Malley. Now, Jay Malley was her current boyfriend. She was seeing him for a couple months, but he had another girlfriend. And the old investigators didn't look into that conflict. And what I found out was that Jay, on the very night that Gail was murdered, Jay's girlfriend at the time, Tina, finds out Hey, she's, she's like six months pregnant, but she finds out she's got a venereal disease. She calls Jay and blames him. Hey, I know you're sleeping with Gail. 
I know we're not together, but you gave me a disease and now our baby could be infected by it. So I seen that conflict and I'm like, Ooh, okay. There is, there is motive there and it doesn't point me towards who they arrested. But then we get to the end of my investigation and it comes all the way back to who they arrested Earl Skip Kramer for one reason, a witness saw him on Gail's porch at like three in the morning, talking to a small blonde haired child saying, your mommy's not here. And when Earl Kramer is questioned about this, Hey, were you on this porch? He initially denies it, but then he says, yes, I was, but I wasn't talking to anybody. So you have three good suspects for three very good reasons and different reasonings as to why they were responsible for the murder of Gail and Tamara. If you rely on science, I would look at Jay, the boy, current boyfriend. Why? Because if you go back to September 2nd, 1994, when Gail was found in this small, tiny room, they have three police officers in there, detectives and a medical examiner. Medical examiner looks, he takes a Q-tip swab and he does a vaginal swab because it appears just by the looks of it that she's been sexually assaulted. When he pulls that out, he turns to the people, the officers in the room, holds up that Q-tip and says, here's your killer, boys. So there was visual semen on there, and she was sexually assaulted. So the officers in the room, they're all like, we can kind of relax. We have this once the results come back. Well, the results came back, and the DNA belonged to her current boyfriend. So everybody was like, well okay, we really got to start investigating now because that semen doesn't tell us anything because it should be there. It's not abnormal. But when I look at the crime scene video and I see them videotaping and they pan over the trash can in the bathroom, I see on top Playtex tampon wrappers. I go back to the autopsy report and it is determined that she was on her period for at least two days. So I immediately start thinking, well, how can she have visual semen inside her if she's on her period and the boyfriend Jay says, I haven't had sex with her for two weeks. How does that semen get there? So now I go back down that route, the boyfriend, Call him in. This is in 2013. Explain why your DNA is. I can't. I can't explain it. I can't explain it. I didn't have sex with her. I didn't have sex with her. Well, the DNA fairy didn't deliver it there. You know, so he's lying. Interview concludes. He wasn't, he won't take a polygraph. But my cell phone rings probably 20 minutes later. And it's Jay. And he says, you know what? I got to come clean with you. I had sex with Gail the night previous. But the reason I lied and I didn't tell investigators all these years is because I was embarrassed because she was on her period. 
So if you go by that, some people would say Jay is probably good for it. For me, I'm stuck and, I, and I'm not 100% sure. We're going to take a quick break. More from our guest after this. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. So it sounds like when you inherited this case, you know, there were there were multiple inches thick file of evidence and that had been collected, interviews that had been conducted, stories that had been recorded. And on top of that, you overlaid new interviews with those old people and new evidence recovery on top of what had been pre-existing. And my question is, was a subpoena power ever utilized by a judge to, for example, force a polygraph test to uh, take DNA samples from anyone else? Was there any opportunity to broaden or enlarge the pool of evidence that you were working with? Yes and no. A lot of evidence was already collected. But the problem that I ran into was when I take the case over 10, 15, 20 years later, whatever it was, I now want to test that evidence for touch DNA. Okay. When it was originally tested in 19, you know, 94, 95, DNA was just in, in its infancy. You almost needed a quarter size drop of blood or semen to get a DNA sample. It's advanced so much. So when I got it, I said, I want to send everything for touch DNA. Gail's shirt was pulled up around her neck and she was, she was choked with it, as was Tamara's. So I know skin cells from the offender's hand is on that material. So I want to send it out. I ran into a huge problem. Because the Pennsylvania State Police Crime Lab would not take evidence that was previously submitted to other labs. Meaning, in 1994, when this case happened, they took all this evidence, the shirt, vaginal swabs, DNA, and they sent it to the Pennsylvania State Police Crime Lab, which is protocol. They send it back, they don't find anything of relevance. Well, the investigators are not happy with that. So we're gonna send it to the FBI's crime lab. Comes back, maybe FBI finds something that they missed, maybe not. Hey, we're gonna send it to a private lab. Fast forward 20 years later, when I get the case, I take it back to the state police crime lab and they say, oh, we can't take this evidence. And I'm like, what do you mean? Well, our policy states, if it's gone to a private lab or another lab, we can't take it back. Well, what am I supposed to do as an investigator now? So what I had to do was I had to go to my district attorney and say, we need money because this has got to go to a private lab. And to his credit, he was like, fine, whatever it takes. Well, I sent it, I believe, to Bodie Selmark and comes back. $30,000 later and the district attorney sees that bill and wants to fire me because of how much money it costs. Um, that's the problem. People don't understand that money and policies dictate sometimes how cool cases go. 
we had a lot of problems with the state police crime lab. At least I did. What did the private lab, what results did the private lab return? Nothing. Um, There was all, all the DNA evidence that we got, especially touch DNA, was mixtures. Everything was a mixture. And there was no, the only full profile that was ever obtained was the semen. And that's it. Um, so there was evidential, evidentiary wise, there was no concrete proof for anybody other than the boyfriend at the time, Jay. So let's take a look from your perspective, detective, at each of the suspects. So going back to Earl Skip Kramer, it's my understanding that there was glitter on his shoes and blood from Gail and Tamara's house, as well as a fiber from a stuffed animal from Tamara's bedroom that was found on either him or his car, respectively. Can you speak to those pieces of evidence and any development on your end with that? Yes, uh, there was no blood found on Earl Skip Kramer at all or in his car. The two pieces of evidence, first was a piece of, at the end of Tamara's bed were like 12 stuffed animals. The entire murder of Gail happened on that bed. When Skip Kramer's clothing was found and sent to the state police crime lab, they didn't find anything. Then, as I said, it was sent to the FBI. The FBI found a single fiber embedded in his clothing that they said came from one of those stuffed animals. He was arrested based on that. Um, When he was interviewed, he failed a polygraph and stuff, and he, he gave a very incriminating statement that when they asked him if he committed these crimes, he said, could I have done it and not remembered? And he also said, in my head, I know I didn't do it, but in my heart tells me yes, something to that effect. So obviously that raised red flags to investigators. So he was arrested on that. Again, charges were dropped. He was rearrested a few years later when additional evidence was found, which was glitter. So in Tamara's bedroom, she had glitter on her floor. Well, that glitter was also found in Skip Kramer's vehicle. Now, the reason charges were dropped the second time is because when they were getting ready for trial, they brought in a police officer who was at the scene and he says, I remember seeing that glitter not only in Tamara's bedroom, but I seen it out on the front porch. Well, that blew the case for them because Earl Kramer had always admitted being on that front porch checking his girlfriend who lived in the other half of the duplex to see if she was and he came home from the bar. So those are the only two pieces of evidence for Skip Kramer being guilty. How did he explain that a fiber from Tamara's stuffed animal was on his clothing? He had no explanation for it. Now, he had been in Gail's house before. And as a matter of fact, he had put together her entertainment stand at one point in time. Mm -hmm. So it's not like he's a complete stranger. He was a boyfriend of Brenda who was friends with Gail and lived basically in the same house as her, just a different you know, it was a duplex. 
So transfer DNA could explain away both of those items of evidence. Which brings me sort of back to that point you made earlier where she was part of a, and this is you know, typical of that of geography and that time that she was part of an insular group of friends, a small group of close friends that spent time together. And given that, is it surprising to you that no one knew more or thought more or suspected more? Or was that part of the rumor cloud you prefaced the case with, which was like, yeah, everyone absolutely had an opinion and it was up to you to draw out and separate fact from fiction? Yeah, when you talk to her close circle of friends, uh, they had their, you know, suspicions eventually as time went on. But when the murder happened, nobody, not her friends, not her family, nobody could pinpoint and say, yes, she had a problem with this guy. He threatened to kill her. Uh, but that never developed. And so it did make it difficult, but what made it even further difficult is Tamara's death. You have a five-year-old child who didn't hurt anybody, who's completely innocent. If Gail's innocent, Tamara is a thousand times more innocent, yet she was murdered as well. So that factors in because you have to determine who was the source of this anger. Tamara's head she had like 36 bruises over her head. She was beaten upon her head. Her head was bashed against the floorboard. Uh, she was strangled and her throat cut. Somebody took out their anger, not only on Gail, but they took it out on a five-year-old child. So it made everything even harder because certainly when you ask the family and friends, who did Gail have conflict? And they say no one when you know what their answer is going to be with Tamara. She absolutely did nothing to nobody. So continuing then in the assessment of the different suspects or persons of interest at that time, and given that horrible infliction of pain and a sort of display of rage to your point to Tamara, let's dig a little deeper into her father, um, you mentioned the potential for conflict over the bringing him back to domestics and getting um, child support ordered to be a little bit more. What was his alibi? What were his interviews like? What was his grief like? So Eric Burkheiser uh, showed tremendous grief over the, especially the loss of his daughter. But if you were to just look at things through a criminal profiling lens, he would fit the crime scene because out of the three suspects, he was the most violent. He was the most angry and he had the biggest motive to kill, especially Tamara. Did he have priors for violent charges? Is that? He did. He had prior, but fights, drunks, uh, things like that. But so did Skip Kramer. But he, had an alibi that night. He was in bed with his girlfriend at the time, and they lived probably, uh, I'll say, two miles away. And that was his alibi. Um, he was never looked into significantly in the previous investigation when it first happened. I really spent a good two years doing a search warrant, getting enough probable cause to do a search warrant at his house that he lived in looking for anything that I could 
listening to hours upon hours of his phone calls from jail, which he was in on a DUI, which I kind of made um, made that happen because he was on probation. And so I could listen to his calls. And I really, when I sit back and look at it, I made his life a living hell for at least two years. I was on him. I, w- I interviewed everybody around him. I made him take a polygraph. I had his wife take a polygraph. Uh, I interviewed his kids. And I really, really harped him bad. And he never broke. He always came to every single interview that I asked of him. Even when I, it was in his best interest not to. He never said no to me. And that's more than I could say for any of the other suspects or people related to this case. So eventually I got to the point where I felt that he was not involved in this. And uh, I still tend to believe that to this day. Were the two bodies, you said the murder, Gail's murder had occurred solely on that bed, which was Tamara's. Were the bodies staged at all, or was there a a type of posing involved, or did her mom find them and the crime scene video showed them in their positions of Gail protecting Tamara, and that was the manner, um, that was the the position of death? No, it definitely wasn't the position, the natural position of death. It was definitely staged, but there's two reasons to stage a crime scene. One is because you want it to look like something that it isn't. That's the most important one. But there's also what happened here, which is kind of a remorse scene. When her mom got there, Gail and Tamara were on the bed, Tamara in the crux of her mom's arm, and they had a blanket over most of their body. definitely the faces of them. Now, All the criminal profilers from the FBI will tell you that that is a sign of remorse, and it it is. But Tamara was definitely placed in her mom's arms after death. And the reason I know this is because there's a blood smear on the bottom of Tamara's shorts. That is Gail's blood, and that smear, it, it can be seen on Gail's leg. So somebody had Tamara after death, reached over Gail's body and put her in Gail's arm. Um, so it, it's definitely staged, but it's more staged as this is a remorseful feeling, kind of, I'm going to put you with your mom. And given that crime scene assessment, how does that play into your assessment of the suspects, particularly Gail's boyfriend at the time then? Well, it's very difficult um, because if you think about it through a criminal's eyes, and that's very hard to do because we're not, we don't think like that, but the killing of a child, what it, what it tells me is that the anger was towards Gail for whatever reason. And Tamara was killed because she could recognize the person that did it. It's the only reason Tamara was killed. So this person did not want to killed Tamara in my belief, but they couldn't let them, let them go because it would surely lead to their demise of being arrested. So to me, that was why 
they put the child in Gail's arms um, to be with her, you know, in, in death. But it certainly could fit any of the three suspects or somebody else that I don't even know about. I mean, I don't rule out that possibility. I don't think that I'm the smartest person in the world and I have it figured out. Yes, I do believe it was one of the three, but I still leave the possibility open that it could be somebody that I don't know and is not on my radar. So after Jay, Gail's boyfriend, called you 20 minutes after your interview and said, actually, I had, and here's why I didn't report it at the time or 20 minutes ago, what further steps did you take to investigate him and what was his alibi at the time? So then I put the pressure on him almost as bad as I did Eric Burkheiser. By that, I had patrol officers sit outside his house in their car every time they had to do a report, sit outside his house to let him know that I was watching. Um, subpoenaed his phone records, his best friend's phone records, had his best friends in take polygraphs. I, you know, I made his life a living hell. But it wasn't as fruitful or forceful as Eric Burkheiser's was. And the reason is he lawyered up like that, just like that. His friends lawyered up. Eric Burkheiser never did that. He came every single interview that I requested of him. He'd be working out in the oil field. He would come, he'd work midnight shift to eight in the morning. He would come meet me at nine in the morning with black grease all over his face, tired, sleep in the chair, but he was there. Can't say that about Gail's boyfriend at the time. Him and his friends just lawyered up. His phone records show that he had very minimal contact with these friends who he was supposedly out riding around drinking. That was his alibi. He was with these two friends riding back roads, drinking, but phone records when I subpoenaed them showed six months, you know, only a couple calls between the three friends. After I had them all in for interviews and the six months after times a hundred more calls between the three. So again, it showed me, Hey, something seems to be going on here. Stay with us. More of the Fox true crime podcast after this. What questions did you have of Jay? What pieces of evidence were you specifically trying to obtain that them lawyering up prevented you from obtaining? Well, the first thing I wanted them to do was take a polygraph. Now, I don't, I'm not a proponent of, of polygraphs. I don't believe in them because of this case. I've seen 10 people fail polygraphs and they had nothing to do with the case. And I've seen other people pass it, and I think maybe they have something to do with the case. But what I do look at is the pre-test and post-test post questions. And those I do like. So I wanted Jay to take a polygraph. I, when he said no, that okay, I get that. I understand why people don't want to take them. But come in for another interview. Now that you have just told me that you've lied for the past 20 years, we need to talk some more. And it was like, I believe he even said, this is getting serious. And his attorney called the district attorney and the district attorney came into my office and said, you're not going to be talking to Jay anymore. So 
It surprises me, given that your employer was the DA, that after him admitting that he lied back then and then to you again, that that wouldn't be sufficient grounds for you to subpoena a polygraph. You say, here's someone whose semen was found inside the victim's body, who lied about it at the time and lied about it again 20 years later, and then just called and changed his mind and, quote, came clean. And therefore, the credibility is shot. And therefore, I need to ascertain via polygraph whether he's also lying or whatever about the alibi, et cetera, et cetera. Why was that not sufficient for a subpoena for a polygraph? Well, again, I'm not an attorney and I don't ever claim to be, but from what I understand, I mean, that's your right. Uh, you're not going to be able, nobody's going to force you or can compel you to take a polygraph, just like they can't compel you to sit down for an interview. So it, it just ended there. Mm. Uh, his friends, you know, that was my next step then to start getting on the friends interviewing friends around him, um, their family members, and they too hired polygraph or hired attorneys. Now mm -hmm. they were, they were a little bit more of a social economical uh, advantage over the other two suspects. You know, Jay came from a decent home. He uh, had a decent job in these things, whereas Eric and Skip were of the lower socioeconomical ladder of the rung. And I think that might have had a lot to do with it now that I look back as well. Since your 10 years of being the lead detective on the cold case investigation, um, it's my understanding that now it was picked up by by the Lycoming County DA's office um, and the torch has sort of been passed. What are your thoughts on that? And what well, was the um, status of the case that you left it? Well, it hurt me to leave it, number one. Um, I became very close with Gail's sister, Julie. She mm -hmm. became like a sister to me. Her best friend, Shauna, you know, it, it hurt for me to call them up and tell them I was leaving because nobody and anybody will tell you this, any police officer that works in the district attorney's office or, or Gail's family, nobody had the passion for the case like I did. And I can unequivocally state that. Now, you go from that to passing it off to maybe some people that don't have that passion and don't really want involved in it. And I know that that was the case here. And now, are they working on the case? I believe that they probably are. But I, I do know that it's not a case where mistakes hadn't been made in the past, which are going to be brought up if there ever is an arrest in the future. If somebody arrests the boyfriend, you know, tomorrow, when they go to court, they're going to say, wait a second, jury. This district attorney's office arrested an individual twice for this murder 20 years ago. Now they're accusing my guy. So, I mean, there's a lot of um, a lot of sticking points in the case moving forward. But what one thing that I've learned is that an arrest and a conviction and a sentence 
is not necessarily my job as a detective. I used to think that it's about solving the case, but it's not what you know, it's what you can prove. And I've learned that. So sometimes when you go and sit with these families and you're sitting there looking at them, you know, and you see the tears in their eyes, you see the void and peripherally, you're seeing pictures of their dead relative on the wall. They put their entire faith in you, in you, you, and it's a heavy burden. But what I've come to realize is when you can sit down and tell them, this is who did it. You'll never get a conviction because of X, Y, and Z. But this is how it happened. This is why it happened. I've come to realize sometimes that's good enough for resolution for the family. Some of them will take that. Now, some of them won't. But I feel that working cold cases sometimes, that is what you need to do. Move the case forward in order to get resolution. Not necessarily a conviction. Gail's mother, who was the one that found her and Tamara's bodies that day, has since passed away. Um, her brothers and little sister and dad are, are still with us. Can you share what feelings they have about the cold case or what they shared with you about their thoughts of who might be responsible? Yeah, the Matthews family is very uh, passionate. Uh, Julie, the sister, has really taken the uh, mantle for the family and has been the spokesperson, um, one, especially since uh, Lois Matthews, Gail's mother, had died. Gail's mother, Lois, was a very low-key, low-spoken person who was very much loved. By her by her family and a little piece of her died when gail and tamara died one thing i noticed about her is she will hold on to any little hope when a detective would show up and say hey it was skip kramer she's all aboard on that then when i show up and i say ah, i'm looking at eric she's all aboard on that she's because they so much want that closure to know who did this to their family so when she died um it was it was very tough uh, because she was the spokesperson and then it got passed down to julie and she's done a tremendous job with that her brothers all still advocates trying to figure out who did this and I, i'm in their corner 100 percent of the time whatever they need it could be Gail's brothers could call me and say, hey, we want help uh, moving these trees and cutting them up. I would go do it for them. That's how much I respect their family. And what are they advocating for? Is it more resources for the DA's office to continue investigating? Is it for their hope that someone might know something and they're, they are pleading with a potential witness or someone to come forward? What exactly are they hoping or what exactly are they asking for? All the above. Everything that you mentioned. They want a district attorney that's in there that will fight for them. Now, the district attorney that was in there that hired me, Eric Linhart, he was the best district attorney I felt for this job because he was very, he, he was very passionate, but he was also very book smart. And he was... He always weighed his options. You know, I went into him and I had an arrest warrant for Eric Burkheiser. Hey, this, we could arrest him. 
for this, 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 this. Yeah, we could. Let's hold off. It's not, it's not there yet. Well, good, because two years later, I went to him and said, hey, this arrest warrant for Jay Malley, his semen's found in there, in her. He lied about this. He did this. His phone records show this. We can arrest him. Yeah, yeah, maybe, but let's hold off. And that is a good district attorney because he could have just went with it. And it would have, I think, hurt the case even further. So that's what the family's looking for. A good district attorney that'll make the right decisions, that won't forget Gail and Tamara. And yeah, you're calling on, on witnesses, people that know things. Because in cold cases, time is your best friend. Okay. And by that, I don't mean with evidence. Yes, evidence degrades, but forensically, we're able to test things that we couldn't back then. And the biggest thing with time is allegiances change, loyalties change, beauty changes. When I'm 22 years old, when this crime happened, I don't care what a sunset looks like. Now that I'm 49, I enjoy it. So internally, we all change. So if there's a person out there that knows what happened at 22, maybe it didn't bother them. But now that they're 49 and they got grandkids and things are different, they got peace in their life and they're sitting there, maybe they won't come forward with the information they have. But maybe if somebody knocks on their door and is forcing themselves upon them for the truth, that's when it'll come out. You shared a while ago that, you know, everyone knows about this case. Everyone has a, a passion and a heart for the victims in this case, notwithstanding the fact that it was a horrific double murder of an innocent woman and her child. Why is that? Can you share why the community was impacted deeply and why so many people pray that this is resolved? Well, number one, make no mistake about it, a child was killed. Anytime a child is killed. Don't care what socioeconomical background, what race, color, creed they are. It's a tragedy and people band together. That is first and foremost. Then secondly, when you overcome the shock value of that, you look at Gail herself and you realize she is like, you know, 90% of the single mothers out there that were struggling to make it, but didn't want help from her brothers, didn't want help from, you know, her mom or dad, she was going to do it on her own. And I think that perseverance plays to people's conscience. They, they like that. Here you have like a working class mom who had no enemies and didn't do any drugs, lived a clean life, and her and her daughter are innocently slaughtered brutally by somebody. And I think that is why the community has banned around this case and has made it that everybody knows and nobody forgets. Circling back on the DNA, you mentioned that when you were able to secure the funding from the DA to send it to the private lab, the results came back mixed. And we talked about the evolution of forensic genealogy and technological advances and the like. Is there any room for advances with the amount of evidence that we have, the amount of samples that we have, or do you feel the results indeed have been exhausted? And the point is that the results themselves are mixed. We only have that one DNA profile, 
Or do you feel in the future there might be then if more attention is paid or if there is more funding for collection of samples that somehow there could be, in fact, more identification or more evidence to be secured? Well, I always hold out hope for future forensic testing. Right now, I would say that I wouldn't hold my breath to think that evidence itself could solve this case. I think it's beyond that point right now. But um, maybe that's what they thought in 1994. And we've seen so many advances since then. So I know there's companies out there that, and I have used them, such as uh, cyber genetics, um, where you have a mixture of DNA and you're staring at it and you don't know what to do and you send it to them and they can separate it and break it down. So there's possibilities that that could be done in this case if, you know, the detectives and the district attorney's office has money in order to do that. What message do you have as now you've passed the torch? What message do you have for those that are working the case now? Uh, well, I know the people that are working the case now. As far as if I remember correctly, one of them used to be my mentor who I worked with um, at the Williamsport Police, and he has now taken over that case. Our relationship has somewhat soured where I think that I looked up to him more than I thought that maybe he looked up to me or looked at me as an equal. I, I don't know what his passion is for the case. I just know he's a good detective or I would have never looked up to him when I was there. But I also know that a lot of times people, when they can't solve something, they look for somebody to blame. And that's my biggest gripe is nobody wanted to work this case. And the reason is that, oh, the original investigator screwed up. It's always that. Oh, every, they screw up. They screw up. And that's not the case. It's just difficult for whatever reason. It doesn't mean that the original investigators screw up. Um, so when I got the case, I made sure not to do that. But people would certainly come up to me and say, well, you are never going to solve that case because the original investigators screw up. They lost the fingernail clippings. No, they're right here. You know, just more rumors, mm. stuff that isn't true. Um, so I never blamed other investigators. Now, I'm not sure if the investigators that have took this case over now um, are of that same mindset. I have a feeling that maybe they will point the blame and say, oh, well, Maines screwed it up. The investigators before him screwed it or whatever it is. Instead of manning up and saying, you know what? It's a tough case. I can't figure it out. That's okay. That's okay because we're all human and we're all fallible. But you got to be a man and you got to be able to accept responsibility. Detective, thank you for your service. Thank you for your investment into this case, your commitment to justice and to solving this cold case and your passion for cold cases. Do you have any final words for those listening today? Um, yeah, my final words were, if you have a cold case, uh, don't ever give up. You know, as I said, with time, time is, is undefeated. It defeats everybody eventually, but it can help. 
So, you know, just stick with it. If you're an investigator and you're listening to this, stick with it. If you're a family member, keep bugging those detectives. Keep calling and saying, hey, what's going on with this? I don't care if they get mad at you. I don't care if they get upset that you keep bugging them. It's your right to do so. So keep doing that. Um, you know, can all if you're interested in true crime and cool cases, go to my YouTube channel and, and watch Unsolved No More, where I have hundreds of videos about that very thing. Please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. If you have a story or topic you want to hear on the show, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at truecrimepodcast at fox.com. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.